Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnerman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You don't want to start culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people. You link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is a special edition of Londonist Out Loud, the podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. Well, 2012's been a big year for London, with the Queen's Jubilee Regatta and the Olympics taking centre stage. But plenty else happening besides, from missile launches on people's roofs to Wi-Fi on the tube. Droughts and floods, more or less within the same week. Leveson, the arrival of a cable car, and uh, of course, Tom Cruise closing Trafalgar Square. Just some of the oddities of the past 12 months. Well, for me, as always, it was through talking to people who live and work in London that I was able to get under its skin. In this look back at the year, I want to share with you some excerpts from some of my favourite conversations of 2012. Our sponsors, as ever, on the show are Audible. Why don't you treat yourself to a free audiobook today at www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist. Now, of course, 2012 was the year of the long-awaited opening of the Shard, by far the tallest building on London's skyline. I spent an hour or two looking at the Shard and some of the much older buildings around it in the company of architect, teacher and tour guide, Benedicto Looney. Well, there we go. That's the way to travel. We're in St Thomas's Street now and we're at the foot of the Shard. And my God, this is an impressive object. Yep, it's it's really it's the business, and I love the way the steel that you see on the outside. It's like solid steel. Normally, you see columns, they're clad, there's something else underneath, but these things are like solid steel. It's such a, a muscular, bit, bit of a boyish kind of building, and one of the things I really love about it is the way it shows its low energy strategy in its outward e- expression. The deal is, it's got this ingenious triple glazed facade with an outer skin of single glazing and a great big gap and then an inner skin of double glazing keeps the warmth in. And that space between the two helps create a blanket of warm air. The exhaust air of the building is fed into this space. And so when you look up at the shard, you see the way this outer skin oversails the inner skin. And so the kind of environmental ideas and the sort of design ideas are expressed really boldly and that's that shows the hand of a confident talented architecture studio is this way that the way the building works is shown typical of high-tech architecture of which of course London is one of the great capitals of high-tech architecture 
And so it's great that Richard Rogers' celebrated partner, Renzo Piano, they both built the Pompidou Center together back in the heady days of the 1970s. Now, Renzo Piano's got a, two fine buildings here in the center of town. Central St. Giles, that crazy colorful building at, just off Tottenham Court Road and Shaftesbury Avenue. And here, the mighty shard marching towards completion in the summer of 2012. Yes, I think the untutored eye might think that this is a very simple object, and as you say, it really isn't straightforward at all. What you might think of if you are glancing at a, a picture of it from a distance or looking at those shots that they use on The Apprentice opening sequence or something like that is a solid, whereas in fact, as you say, there's layers wrapped around each other. Uh, the, the shape itself, as well, isn't a straight line, I notice. It's not, uh, from, the, from the base to the point, it's not a straight line by any means. Yeah, well observed. It's got this fantastically asymmetrical plan form. So instead of a square extruded upwards, it's like this crazy hexagonal shape with these jagged lines kind of adjusting to this miniature site it has. It's incredibly constrained site beside old St. Thomas's Street and this big Victorian railway station. And so dealing with the complexities of the site they've come up with this crazy faceted form and so it ain't a square it ain't a pyramid it's a much more complex nuanced building we're going to look at a less nuanced building i suspect next door but one worthy of attention for a whole bunch of other reasons much smaller uh, much dirtier and grimier looks uh, maybe victorian or something like that let's poodle down there and take a look well, there are plenty of good reasons to hope that you don't end up in the Old Bailey, London's Central Criminal Court. But I did, in order to interview the chap who runs the place, Charles Henty, the Under-Sheriff and Secondary of London. Uh, we're the Central Criminal Court, so we're uh, what I think is called a, a Tier 2 court, because we don't deal with civil cases, unlike the High Court. And the High Court is the most senior. Then you have now, of course, the Supreme Court. But with us, we are dealing with the most serious criminal cases in the country well mainly in the south east i have to say because you've got crown courts elsewhere as part of the crown court system so i think wherever possible and quite rightly so too if there is a very very serious crime committed in the environs then that local crown court should be able to deal with it uh, what we tend to deal with because we're a much more populated part of the world is that we deal with the crimes the most serious crimes committed in the southeast of england uh, and london in particular um, and so consequently we have 18 courts here we have 16 permanent judges here to the old bailey uh, all murder ticketed as we call it you know, the vernacular so they must be able to try murder before they even come here or if they are appointed here they must be able to deal with that type of crime so they must be very good before they've even got on the shortlist or come here um, so we are dealing with that we deal a lot with uh, gang crimes and that sort of side but predominantly we're dealing with homicide so that's murder manslaughter attempted murder but we deal with some low-level terrorism uh, we deal with crimes of a sexual nature um, historical cases now as well uh, and then we'd also deal with uh, other cases as and when we've got a gap but uh, it's a complicated business, but we are as full as we possibly can. And unfortunately, at times you think, gosh, are we in a re recession-proof industry? And that's the frightening bit of it. Well, let's unpack that frightening side of it as well, because, of course, on the, the news you hear every now and again that uh, a, a case has come to this court, and it's usually uh, uh, extremely gruesome and grisly. And I wonder whether the profile of cases has evolved in the time since you've been here. This is a very personal view. I mean, I've only been here just coming up eight years. And perhaps what I see is not necessarily reflective on the rest of society. So it's slightly skewed because automatically we're seeing the most serious cases. Uh, what does worry me privately is a lot of the people that come here are very young, predominantly male, um, often part of a gang who seem to have no future in their own eyes and they have to join something to prove themselves to get out of this spiral and occasionally it leads them into another spiral. Um, so we do see a lot of that and in my time here it appears to me, but I don't know whether statistically I'm correct, is that people are getting younger. Uh, we've had uh, very young contract killers, 15, uh, people have uh, tried... Uh, for murder at the age of sort of 13, 14. Um, and it, unfortunately, I don't think it's that uncommon now. Um, it's very scary. I sort of imagine when, when I think of 
historical crime, you know, 100, 200 years ago uh, past, you sometimes pick up these very sensational crimes which are remarkable in, in similar ways. You know, some facet of it is uh, extreme, extremely young criminal, whatever it might be. But you, you really see this as being a, a trend rather than the odd blip here or there? I, I mean, I discuss it with the judges every now and then, and I think they're currently saying that the murder rate is down. Um, but what we're seeing here is because of the type of case that comes here, we're, we're seeing a particular variety. And I'm just saying from what I see, and I may be wrong, um, that you're seeing more youngsters graduating from the very, very sad knife culture into gun crime. And consequently, the government has made a huge difference in terms of penalty uh, if caught carrying a gun or carrying a knife or using it in terms of the tariff uh, given to them at the starting point. And a lot of people think, you know, somebody's been found guilty of murder, they're over the age of 18, uh, they get life or a 28-year bit, but some people think that's all they will serve. You've got to be very careful about interpreting that because it may be that that person will only ever be left out on life licence um, but they won't even get to the parole board before, say, 24, 28 years. And you just see these people who come in there, they've done something, and then they're going to spend most of their adult life, most of their life, in prison. And it's terribly sad. I don't know whether this is a fair question for this sort of interview, but I, I thought I'd try it anyway, and you can tell me to shut up. But I wonder what you think of, of uh, prison incarceration as prisons are, are managed at the moment. Does that seem to you an effective way of handling somebody who's done something like that i uh, it's a really good question i would like to say shut up that would be me denying the question um i think quite a lot of the public feel that going to prison should be a punishment not a luxury um and they should really be put under pressure but is that really fair to put somebody under pressure for all that length of time um i think that the prisons are overcrowded uh, what can you do? If there are sufficient checks that that person can make a do a penalty but contribute back uh, to society, which you can't do too much from within prison, although they do here. I mean, some of our prison doors are made by defendants, uh, with those that have been sent down, I'm afraid. Um, so there's some constructive work that they can do, uh, needlework for some of the, the women that have been sent down, something to occupy the mind, bearing in mind quite a lot of these people are incarcerated for huge amounts of time. I think also that if you put criminals all in the same place, you swap stories, you swap skills. How do you put them in, into a constructive way? And what we're trying to achieve, I think, across the country is that we, we only want to see you, if we see you at all, Go away, be educated, and not reoffend. And so I think you've got to look into the reoffending rates. Um, there are, of course, some people who take sucker by the fact they've actually got into prison because their home life is so awful. That is in itself an acceptable alternative, um, which is very, ha- very sad. But if you go to the root of the problem, perhaps, uh, one of the things that we've discussed here, and it's an important one, is where you have a broken family, which is all too often, uh, you have uh, fathers who are not around, mothers having to deal with everything, um, and maybe multiple partners, multiple families, uh, and they, there's a lack of a moral compass and moral direction. And so it seems to be okay to do this because it's, it's happening next door. But I, you know, that moral compass bit is so, so important. How to get to the root of it and deal with it effectively by putting perhaps everybody out into the street in chain gangs is not the answer, in my view, Um, although that satisfies some of the, shall I say, the public lust to see it that way. I don't think that's the right answer. I don't know what the answer is, and I'm sure clever minds, much cleverer than me, would do that, but I want to prevent it. So I see some of these people um, at warning uh, levels come in here, have a look around the Bailey, come into court and see people of the same age being sent down or, or being on trial of the same age as them. And um, that's a powerful message. But I can't bring everybody in here. Uh, it's quite scary, though. It sounds like you're talking about cohesion of the family unit as being a, a very important factor. Well, I don't think it's the schools. And I think parent, uh, school teachers get a lot of the blame for problems at home. Um, it's a combination, but I think I think it's for home to deal with, uh, and I think that it's almost impossible for some to be able to deal with it at home. So there's got to be a social care element there. Um, the answer is not easy, but it's easy to blame. One of the things that I 
think very strongly about is that when you have the advent of the internet, and this is what going out on an iPod or whatever it is. It's, it's going out on anything that can play iTunes, and, okay. and thank you for the plug. Okay, right, there you go. <laughs> um, but you've got this ability now to survive without anybody else, almost. And if you, you know, you can be, the stuff can be delivered to your door, you can live your life without having to knock on your neighbour. Mm. And that, to me, is possibly one of the things that has changed or is changing the culture, that people can become even more siloed. Uh, the elderly are getting more siloed to an extent. They're getting, in some cases, terrified. Uh, in other cases, why do we want to go out? Because we can have the convenience of knowing what's going on in the world straight from inside. So you're losing that community spirit so i'm a firm believer of community uh, action not in a, in a very positive way which is probably why i've been in the allotment grow for 10 years as you'll know there's been a lot of digging going on under london as a fleet of boring machines make the tunnels for crossrail in the early part of the year the crossrail archaeologists put on a show of the things that their digging machines had uncovered i spoke to geologist ursula lawrence we're by a low display case now. Several smallish items here turn out to be amber of 55 million years in age. These were found at Canary Wharf, and they're quite attractive objects, glittering slightly under the display lighting. Don't know about you, but I can hardly get my mind around a figure like that. We've also got the remains of a bison. And this is a bison humerus and bison cheek tooth, the lower third molar, 68,000 years old. Similarly, reindeer, and this is the part. This is part of an antler base, again 68,000 years old. So I think we'd have to guess that these are, by a long, long way, the oldest items here. If you're sitting in front of Google right now, it might be a good idea to check out the age of the Earth. Portion of that history does 55 million years represent. Well, here with me is Ursula Lawrence. She is a geologist. She's working with the Crossrail team. How does that work? Are you with the team the, the whole time, or are you, you called in occasionally? I'm no. I'm, I'm employed directly by Crossrail, um, and I um, have responsibility for part of the route to make sure that the uh, ground conditions are um, understood appropriately, and, and that's incorporated into the design and the construction methodologies. What does that mean in practical terms? There's some very business talk going on there. What, what do you have to do day to day? Um, it means that making sure that the contractors have got all the information about the ground, all the all the all the test results, that um, we've taken all the right water measurements, um, and that when we we uh, do our design calculations and our construction, that I'm flagging up to the construction teams. Yes, you can do this. No, you can't do that. Have you thought about these pressures, those water levels coming in through those rocks, that kind of thing. Ah, right. Okay. So uh, I was, my mind was drifting away to archaeology there. So you're not. It's not specifically about the archaeology or the, or the historical side no, of it no, at all. No. This is very much about the, what the ground is doing, how That's the ground's right. going to. The engineering properties, how it responds to, to the, the engineering that we propose to do, and making sure that um, the engineering is compatible with with the, the behaviour of the ground. Is the ground very varied as across London? Oh yes it is, yes. In the west of London we're, we're um, constructing the, the tunnels through what's called the London clay. It's very stiff, it's hard, it's like when you open up a pack of modelling clay um, or plasticine and it's great stuff to tunnel in. If you look at an older map of, of the tube network you will see that the vast majority of it lies north of the river and that's because it's all in the London clay. Um, when you dig it out it will stand up for, for several weeks which gives you the time to build the tunnels and the stations uh, and lay all the bricks. Um, it's only in recent years that we've become south of the river with the, with the sands, especially, um, because they have water running through them. So it, it needed a development in tunnelling technology to be able to support the tunnels as we go along um, and overcome those problems. That's fascinating. We've been talking on the show in recent weeks about this kind of north-south divide, and what, public transport is one of the big ones, of course, is that there's no public transport south of the river. And if, oh, that's, so there's a geological basis for that? Oh, yes, very much so, yes. It even caught out the, the famous Brunel. Um, he had a lot of problems when he was digging his tunnels. Very interesting. Uh, I'm really excited by this. Uh, do you know off the top of your head how old the Earth is? Uh, 4,600 million years. No, yes, 4,600 million, yes. Okay, so this it's, I, was, I wasn't quite sure what sort of portion of time 55 million years represents, but it's still a reasonable uh, way into it. What, it is, yes. what, so these must be the oldest exhibits here? They are indeed, yes, by a long way. 
And apart from their great age, which I'm imagining must be shared by a lot of uh, bits of rock around town, um, what, what makes these bits of amber special? Well, the chance of us finding it for a start. Um, the amber was, was formed um, in a very tropical environment. Where we're standing now was at the bottom of a beautiful, shallow, tropical sea. Um, land was off to the west, um, Wiltshire, uh, West Country, Wales, Midlands, all, sort of, all points north and west. Um, a forest fire uh, affected the land, uh, heated up the resin in the trees, made it boil, um, come out of, of the trees and drip onto the floor. The forest fire went through, the rains came, and they washed this now hardened resin along with the sand and the ash and the charcoal through the streams and the rivers, through the mangrove swamps and out into the shallow tropical sea where we are now. And then about um, over the millions, millions of years, um, more and more sediments were laid up um, and then they were gradually eroded over the remaining period of time. And then about 15 years ago, we started drilling boreholes over the entire length of Crossrail. We've drilled some 1,800 boreholes, a combined meterage of about 64 kilometres. Um, and we decided to drill a borehole, one of about 100 um, at Canary Wharf. They're about 100 millimetres in diameter, and we just happened to drill it smack over the t- on top of this tiny little piece of amber that's about the size of a 50 pence piece. So is this a rare find for you? Oh yes, very much so. Amber in, in the UK rock succession is incredibly rare, and you, you literally do not need the fingers on one hand to count the numbers of pieces of amber in the UK rocks. It's very exciting. Does it have a, a great uh, material value for that reason? Potentially, yes. Um, I don't know what its value is, I'm afraid. I mean, like later on when we make this into a necklace and flog it, you know, the, <laughs> are we going to be able to charge more is what I'm asking. Um, it's, it's unsuitable for making into a necklace because it's so old, it's very fragile, and, and you'd end up with just a pile of chips. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all the, the bits and pieces on display here, what's, your, what, what's the thing that excites you the most? Oh, the amber. Oh, it is, OK. Yes. But that's because I'm a geologist, not an archaeologist. So all of this other stuff, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's very new, isn't it? The idea of some pots over there, which are a few hundred years old, there's nothing in that for you, is there? No. <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> Does, is it even like anything within the time that humans have existed? No. That's not no. no, humans have only been around um, a million years, million and a half years, something like that. So this is, this is way um, before humans. This is kind of like, a, it's about 10 million years after the dinosaurs disappeared. So, if I'm imagining how you might see the world, so you, I know that, that sort of before uh, living organisms turned up, there was rocks for a long time. That's right. And this, this is clearly a result of living organisms. Yes, trees, plants. And is there, a, is there a sort of a most exciting time, in terms of the, the period, the huge majority of the, life's, uh, the life of the Earth, where it's just rocks, is there a most exciting rock phase? Um, there's, there's, life came and went in spurts, really, because there was, it's punctuated, the history of life is punctuated by, by extinction events. There's been five big extinction events. So you'd get lots of really exciting life forms, and then they, they'd, most of them get wiped out. Um, and then you, you start building up the life forms again, different life forms. Hmm. So it, it's, there are more exciting bits and less exciting bits. Well, that's very interesting. So uh, am I right in thinking then that amber being the product of a, a life form, even though I would think of that as being a sort of a, a rock, essentially, yes. but it's not, is it? No. But it is the direct product of the... It's the resin coming out of the trees. It's dripped onto the ground, and then over the period of time, yeah. it's um, hardened. So you get different ambers according to which of the periods of yes. life on Earth? Yes, that's correct, yes. I feel like I've learned something. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't plan to, but I think I, I might just have done it. Excellent. <laughs> now, I think it's fair to say that very few people know the East End like Rachel Kolsky. She specialises in the Jewish history of the East End. And uh, around about the middle of the year, it was my privilege to be taken on a whistle-stop tour of that area. Oh, look. Oh, look. There's, um, is it Mandeville or Wenlock? Mandeville, Mandeville, or pearly Mandeville. And he's dressed as a pearly king. He's pearly Mandeville. Oh, bless. Oh, you've got to hand it. He looks cute, no? Pictures on website. <laughs> We're now at Spitalfields. You've now reached what people typically call today Spitalfields or Spitalfields Market. And if you look around you, what you can see are um, um, uh, a large number of tall glass and steel buildings. That's uh, a little bit of what we call the city encroaching upon the old East End. But if you look um, around you, as well as seeing the big new office blocks, you will also see some of the earlier buildings as well. Some of the the buildings which are shops at uh, ground level and offices above, which gives you an idea of what this area used to look like. 
Um, you do have to use your imagination a little bit when you walk around the area of Spitalfields and Brick Lane if you want to sort of um, discover what we used to call the old Jewish, the Jewish East End. And um, that's because so much of it has been um, eradicated over the years with, with demolition. But what's wonderful about the area is that if you actually take an opportunity to walk around, stop at a few places, really look at what you can see. There's still lots of the memories of the Jewish East End here today as well. We're now really on the, on the edge of what people typically call the old, the old Jewish East End. The Jewish East End as, a con, as an area was quite short-lived, shorter-lived than most people think really, mainly from the late 19th century to the interwar years between the First and Second World War. And um, as we walk around, you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit. There are lots of memories here to remind us of that Jewish community. Um, but one should also remember that this area has always been a haven for other immigrant groups as well. And the memories of those are also really sort of, sort of entwined within the buildings and streets here. Most notably, the uh, French Huguenots who came over here in the late 17th century and then of course after the second world war when the bengali community started to develop and uh, today of course for the younger generation sadly of which i'm no longer a member but for the younger generation um if they come to the spitalfields area it really is a shopping shopping eating extravaganza and very much a curry, ca- uh, curry capital of london as some people like to call it but we're going to concentrate on on the jewish um the jewish uh, experiences here and I mentioned that it's called Spitalfields. The area takes its name from the uh, Priory of St. Mary's Spittal, which was established uh, centuries and centuries ago. The Priory of St. Mary's Spittal was one of numerous religious, what we call religious houses, dotted around the country. Uh, that would be a priory, an abbey, a monastery, a nunnery. And they, there was typically uh, nuns or monks uh, living there. And they, they um, didn't just worship and sort of have their own community. They did a lot of what we'd call today outreach. They provided hospital care. They provided inns for travellers, they had orchards, they had fish ponds, they had bakeries, they were really like mini villages um, in themselves and uh, King Henry VIII in the 1530s dissolved them, we typically call that in the history, dissolution of the, monas- uh, dissolution of the monasteries and uh, they were massive landowners and so what happened was, the land was appropriated by King Henry VIII and, uh, and was redistributed to his favoured courtiers or indeed some was kept for the royal family um, themselves so it sort of went in, a lot of the land went into private hands and hence could then be what we'd call go into property development, which is why the area's changed so rapidly. And, and presumably at exactly that point they've lost a lot of their uh, cottage industry. Um, well, yes, once uh, they'd been uh, dissolved. I mean, it, it actually had big impacts on London. For instance, like, uh, where, would, where would people go to get uh, medical, medical care? You know, and in fact, St. Bartholomew's Hospital, the one at Smithfield, was actually re-endowed by King Henry VIII. There was a sudden sort of, you know, oh my goodness, you know. So occasionally, um, what the, um, the effects of what had happened were, were recognised, but absolutely it had a, they, it had a massive effect on, on the public at large, more so than probably people, people really think. But uh, what grew up in this area of Spitalfields was um, a fruit and vegetable market uh, from the 1680s onwards. There was a massive fruit and vegetable market here from um, the 1680s to 1991, when it didn't close down, but it relocated to Temple Mills. And one of the, one of the glorious things about uh, London is how, um, well, how large it is and how everything dovetails. And when it moved in 1991 to Temple Mills, nobody really knew where Temple Mills was. It could have been, it could have been anywhere. However, now everybody knows because anybody that went to the Olympic Park on the northern side would have seen the signs to the new Spitalfields Market so it's had a now everybody goes oh so that's where it went anyway for our purposes today you can see um, a brand new um, development of shops and offices the old Spitalfields Market buildings from the 1880s still remain we're going to walk past those and for the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia from Poland in the late 19th century so many of them made their home here I would say just to give you a couple of statistics just to put what you're going to hear in some form of context the Jewish East End was around two square miles at its height it probably had around 125,000 Jewish people living here and there were probably around 65 synagogues so that gives you an idea of the density and to give you the boundaries um, these are my boundaries other people might want to contest them but these are my boundaries um, East, uh, western side would be the boundary with the City of London, near where we are at the moment. Um, the eastern side would probably be Bedette Road near Mile End Southern side, Cable Street, and then north, uh, Bethnal Green Road. Now, of course, Jewish people lived 
you know, north, south, east and west of those boundaries, but that's where the concentration was. And when one pictures the Jewish community of that time, one typically pictures poverty, hard work, and, and in truth, that's what, that's what it was, poverty and hard work. And people typically think of uh, what we call the schmutter trade, the rag trade, the clothing, tailoring trade, particularly the sweated tailoring trade. But um, I should also say that a lot of Jewish people um, went into the furniture trade, although typically that was at the northern end of the East End, in, towards what we know today as Shoreditch. But a lot of them were in the fruit and vegetable trade as as well. So, so many Jewish families had their livelihood from when the fruit and vegetable market was here. Was the rise of particularly that density of Jewish population a sudden thing or did it gradually grow up? The, the Jewish community, to give, to give a very, again, to give a little brief historical perspective, I suppose, uh, together with the statistics, um, the Jewish, there was a medieval Jewish community in London. Uh, the Jewish community in Great Britain was expelled by King Edward I in 1290. And when the Jewish community was allowed back into England, we call it the resettlement, in 1656 by Oliver Cromwell, they settled not in the middle of the city of London where the medieval Jewish community was, but on the edge of the city at what we now call Aldgate. And gradually, you know, the Jewish community grew, what I call by natural growth. You know, people meet, they get married, they have children. Uh, a large number, considerable number of Jewish people came over from Germany in the 1700s. They were economic migrants as much as anything else. But um, so by the middle of the 19th century, there were probably around 40,000 Jewish people in London. And then in the early 1880s, after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in Russia, that's what began the unprecedented uh, mass uh, emigration from Eastern Europe or, and immigration into Britain. Is this the pogroms? That yes, are because there, the, nobody really knew who was behind the plot to assassinate the Tsar, but it was considered to be a Jewish plot. And that's when that unprecedented uh, amount of persecution, the pogroms, um, um, ability to travel, to earn your living from your profession, it was all curtailed and that's when so many Jewish people left the shores. It has to be said, a lot of them wanted to go to America and they ended up here um, but a lot of them planned to go to America but, you know, in, in, in the end stayed. So there was a rapid growth there was a rapid growth from the 1880s onwards when tens of thousands came in until the early 20th century when various acts of parliament were passed to try and prevent um, mass, mass immigration. Yes, this, mu- this must have ruffled some feathers, this level of uh, arrival of one particular group. Yes, and interestingly enough, the feathers were ruffled within the Jewish community as well because by that time, by the 1880s, the earlier Jewish uh, settlers who had established themselves worked hard for, you know, to remove the civic disabilities uh, from the Jewish community. They were, some of them were very wealthy, they had friends in high places, um, you know, they were, there'd been a Jewish Lord Mayor, Jewish MPs, um, the first Jewish Lord was about to come. They tried to emulate English aristocracy in quite a lot. They liked wearing top hats, you know, frock coats to synagogues. You know, Jew- Jewish Prime Minister. <laughs> and, well, um, by that you mean Benjamin Disraeli. He, um, he was Jewish born, but he, at the age of 12 he'd been converted to Christianity. So he was Jewish born, but would never have been able to enter Parliament and have the successful parliamentary career that he had um, if, he had, um, if he'd remained Jewish. Yeah, so. Well, the Crossbones Graveyard is a fairly unprepossessing bit of land set back behind some fencing garlanded with ribbons. And it was there, just south of London Bridge, that I met with John Constable, who gave Ingrid Beasley and I an introduction to the graveyard and the rich history of the surrounding area. We have processed past one or two recognisable streets, one or two completely unrecognisable streets, and a blank wall where no Banksy is. <laughs> and uh, we have marvelled at the, the horror in John's view of the corporate street out there. We are in view now of both the Golden Hind just behind us, and uh, we've got half a building, not even half a building, that's being generous. What, what, have, you, uh, what have you brought us to here? It's the ruins of uh, Winchester Palace, uh, which was the London home of the Bishop of Winchester, he who licensed the Winchester geese, those, those prostitutes. He did 
did it under a, 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 an ordinance that dates back to 1161 AD, the ordinance to protect um, the stews, to regulate the stews of Southwark. And they, it included all these different rules of how the brothel keepers and the prostitutes and the innocent passers-by and the punters all had to behave and there were fines to pay if they didn't. And one fascinating thing is the signature on these ordinances. The man who signed them was Thomas Beckett, who was later to become Saint Thomas a Beckett. Now, this idea of licensing prostitutes is quite unusual to a contemporary ear, isn't it? This isn't something that we would have much truck with today. And to find that the, the church was doing that rather than the state is quite surprising. It is. Um, well, of course, Amsterdam has, and other European cities have, have experimented with... And there is a campaign still to legalise prostitution driven a lot by sex workers who who feel they'd be much better protected in such a situation. But yes, it's unusual for the church. I think one thing to understand uh, although Shakespeare himself um, calls him a Winchester goose, the Bishop of Winchester, thou that gives whores indulgences to sin. So Shakespeare took a dim view of at least some of those bishops. But in fairness the church inherited an area that was already very lawless and sought to impose some sort of order. So the idea of a liberty was not that anything goes but that you have different rules for a palace this of course is quite a modest affair well this is the the remains of the great hall which was part of a much bigger priory of saint mary overy the dock nearby here is called saint mary overy dock and in fact it was the original name for the cathedral um, before the reformation so um, yes it's the whole of saint mary overy priory covered this whole area including where the cathedral now is and running up to london bridge so this was just the great hall uh, where the bishop uh, for example um, cardinal beaufort um, married his um, daughter to the king of scotland and the, the feast was held here so it was considered quite grand in medieval times still got that lovely rose window as well yes it's amazing that that's survived hasn't it very beautiful uh, end wall that we've got there what do you make of this ingrid i think it's rather a strange area in that um there's nothing much there apart from the wall that you have suggested and there seems to be moss on the ground and, and um and it's just completely railed off, which I'm wondering why, because the wall is fantastic and needs to remain. But is this just to give a sense of the proportion of the hall or something? Originally, down here, because the, there's a pit below us that you're describing, Ingrid, and originally you can see the remains of it. There was a huge stone cross which had stood in the foundations, and it's sadly been covered with sand and and moss has grown on it. I don't know why they did that, presumably to try and protect it. A lot of what is called heritage often strikes me as being rather theme-parking history. And indeed, you mentioned um, the Golden Hind just over there, which is a lovely boat, a working replica of of Drake's boat, lovely for kids. Uh, And and so I wouldn't criticise it, except in the sense of people start to believe that is something to do with the history of this place. We are on something of a whistle-stop reduced version of one of John's tours here. Uh, Of course, there's far more time to do more. We've got one more stop-off. Where are we going to next? Uh, Let's head over to the Tabard, where uh, Chaucer and his pilgrims set off on their pilgrimage to Canterbury to visit the tomb of Thomas Beckett. Well, as so often happens on this show, uh, a couple of people I only met this morning have taken me down an alleyway, (laughs) (laughs) and and we are standing uh, around... Well, it's it's a fairly nondescript sort of area, to be honest. This isn't the sort of place that uh, I usually come. I'll have you know. (laughs) Well, as I say, it's often down these unprepossessing little alleyways that history lurks, ready to come out and bite us. So we're here in Talbot uh, Yard, but that's a corruption of Tabard, because this was the site of the Tabard Inn, where... Um, Geoffrey Chaucer and his pilgrims meet before setting off for Canterbury in, in Southwark at the Tabard as I lay ready to wenden on my pilgrimage says Chaucer and the reason they would meet in this and other coaching inns along Borough High Street was because in those days London Bridge was the only bridge over the river and so uh, pilgrims would come over the bridge put up in the, one of the coaching inns all along this street and then set off in the morning either for the continent or in this case for Canterbury and it was a great pilgrimage of course made for lots of reasons not least 
people seeking miraculous cures and they were going to a shrine that was supposed to have these miraculous powers and that was the shrine of St Thomas Beckett the uh, man who had signed the uh, ordinance legalising prostitution in this area but who also later was murdered in his own cathedral as Archbishop of Canterbury for how long? Oh, so many questions. How, for how long was prostitution uh, legal and licensed in that way? Just over five hundred years. It, 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 I mean, it was, the ordinances were signed in eleven sixty one A.D. And I so, suppose there were times Henry VIII briefly rescinded um, th- th- that. So you, one could say it ended in Henry VIII's time, but really it came back again, and it was only with Cromwell uh, the sixteen forties. So roughly. Just over 500 years, or just under 500. Right, and the rise of Puritans, and uh, yeah, they wouldn't be for for that sort of thing, would they? They closed the lot. Theatre as well, of course, which was considered as only one step above the world's oldest profession. The second oldest was acting. And we should disentangle fact from fiction as well. Uh, You mentioned that Chaucer himself came on pilgrimages, and of course he wrote about uh, pilgrims heading down to Canterbury. Can we just disentangle this? We can, although, I mean, we we don't know that Chaucer made the pilgrimage, but many people have suggested he did. Certainly, Chaucer, many of those characters were representative types, but they may well have been based on actual people. We know that the landlord of the Tabard is Harry Bailey. That is a real historical character. He was actually the... uh, MP as well for this area and he's the man of course in in the Canterbury Tales who suggests uh, that the pilgrims should tell each other stories on the way and the best story gets a free meal on the house so in a way Chaucer is conflating uh, his fiction with real characters and events. You seem pretty certain that this really was the precise site. I think we, we are certain. It's the back entrance to Guy's Hospital. In fact, just over there is the mortuary. Uh, so, uh, but again, it's quite appropriate, you know, that the pilgrimage was very much about healing and uh, the hospitals of Guy's and formerly, of course, St Thomas's was also here in the London Bridge area. Right, so we've got the people having a few drinks in here. They look out, they see the mortuary, they think what we need to do is en masse get as far away from that as possible. <laughs> yes, I think I see the motivation there. Well, earlier on in the year, it came to our attention that one of London's many small museums, the Ragged School Museum in Mile End, had suffered a pretty shocking attack of vandalism. Many of its windows smashed along the canal side. We made it our business to get down there. Dr. Seppi Cassatari of the London Mapping Festival and I were given a warm welcome there by the director of the museum, Dr. Erica Davis. Here we are at the Ragged School Museum. This was a set of um, canal-side warehouses which the redoubtable Dr Bernardo turned into one of the largest ragged schools in London. Um, He had his main mission down the road um, in the former Edinburgh Castle, which he called the Citadel of Satan, and he turned into the British Working Men's Coffee Palace. We're talking about a former pub, right? (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and Bernardo then noticed these buildings were uh, not being used and took over the lease and turned them into this um, very large-sized um, ragged school. Um, he added another building in 1890s, and at that point it was the largest ragged school in London. And what do we need to know about Bernardo, whose, whose name, of course, is famous worldwide? Very, very determined... Very ambitious, small man from Ireland. He was born in Dublin, um, got seized with evangelical Christianity um, in his teens, wanted to go to China, um, which was about large enough for his ambition. But on coming to East London, he just was overwhelmed by the poverty that he found here. He arrived in 1866 when there'd been a terrible cholera epidemic um, and you know, a lot of the people died, um, who died, came from the East End. So he decided to stay. At first, it was missionary Christian zeal, but then he realised the desperate state of people, and particularly children. He tells the story of finding Jim Jarvis, um, an orphan who's living in hay carts in Whitechapel, and it's then that he realises that the welfare of children was desperate. So that's what he devoted his life to. 
So we're in the sort of entry lobby to the Ragged School Museum. Now, what is what is a Ragged School? A Ragged School, um, it's as broad as it's long, really. Um, it was set up by people for a range of philanthropic reasons from the 18th century right through to the 20th century. Because even when there was universal education in the, 18, in the 1870s, um, you still had to pay. Um, and it could be penny, tuppence, threepence a week. And if you're a very poor family with erratic wages, which many of the families around here were, um, you just couldn't afford that for your six children. So Bernardo and others like him, particularly the Earl of Shaftesbury, um, still believed that there was a need for ragged schools. A ragged school union was set up in 1844, and um, Shaftesbury became the president. And um, so, as I say, they... they, they Educated the very, very, very poorest children. Uh, so this was all being privately funded or having uh, yeah, money, uh, money whipped up somehow? Yes, somehow. I mean, Bernardo was a huge philanthropic um, entrepreneur. I, I, I don't know enough about the subject, but I think he must be the person who in a way pioneered this kind of entrepreneurship in philanthropy because he didn't have wealth of his own. Uh, he raised money, and he's, he's, it's claimed he raised three million in his own lifetime. So he'd be appealing for funds for the school. He'd be appealing for funds in 1879 for feeding the kids. Um, and in fact, he illustrates here, if you look on this panel, um, he illustrates the boys um, having, uh, having uh, a meal. Um, and they're sitting still at their school desks. They the are indeed. It. And if, as you notice, three to a desk. And later, the school board uh, complained that this was an abuse of the desks, putting three boys to a desk. But I suppose needs must. And you'll see from that illustration of the boys eating at their desks um, that the classroom upstairs, which is used these days for our school visits, um, has been based on that classroom there. Yes, it looks very much the same. You've clearly been at pains to recreate the place as, as closely as possible, and we can see examples of the. These are the, the those good old-fashioned solid uh, bench desks with the seat attached to the desk unit, which flips open, and you can put your books and pens and so forth in there. Intended for skinny boys, much more difficult for big adults these days. Um. I vaguely remember having something like that at, at my school, and I, I certainly couldn't fit in underneath it at all. <laughs> No, no, they're not the most comfortable because whenever we do adult talks in our classroom, I always say, well, I can't tell you to sit comfortably because you won't. <laughs> now, it seems to me that uh, we were talking, for example, last week about Florence Nightingale and you've talked about Shaftesbury and Bernardo and it seems as though there was a massive movement towards philanthropy in the Victorian era. Yeah, I mean, they were... And, and I think what's so notable about Bernardo was this incredible energy um, that the Victorians had... Ian Hislop did a series recently about Victorian philanthropists and I mean what is endearing about them I think is that they are um, so energetic, so visionary um, and so relentless, they never give up and Bernardo was certainly one of those. What was it do you think about that period that spawned so many figureheads I guess of philanthropic, of philanthropic generosity? Well I think it was because the need was so great and I think it's very easy to forget that they were confronting an establishment who felt that the rich were rich and the poor were poor because that was divinely um, that was you know div what was divinely intended um, and the charity organization society who was one of Bernardo's great antagonists um, they believed you know they they supported the poor law system and I think for those who watch something like uh, who do you think you are and saw the one with Glenn Goodman two of his ancestors committed suicide rather than go into the local workhouse, which was one of the worst in the country. So that's what these people were trying to change. They, they're the um, teach a man to fish um, ideology, that if you give people the tools to make a living for themselves, then they'll go about it. Yes, I was thinking that perhaps this uh, represents sort of the, the welfare state in embryo, but it's not quite the same as that, really, is it? It's about empowerment and that whole yeah. Victorian ideal of uh, self-improvement. Yes, I, I, I th for these evangelical Christians, certainly. And, I mean, Shaftesbury also uh, believed that there was about to be the second coming, so you had to perfect society ready for that. 
When did he think the second coming was going to happen? I'm not really sure. I'm not, I'm not enough of a Shaftesbury expert, but that certainly was part of his, um, his, his outlook. Um, Bernardo seems to have gone through several different of the evangelical Christian sects. I mean, he never seemed to settle to any. And certainly at his funeral, he seems to be nestled into the Church of, Church of England by then. Uh, but it is remarkable. Um, you know, the outlook, the outlook was one that you can change society. And I think that's so important. Well, finally, possibly one of my favourite interviews from this year was with Peter Rees, who is the planning officer for the City of London. He has an encyclopaedic knowledge of the development of the architecture of the built environment. If he has any failing, it's uh, possibly his overuse of the word erection. The history of the City of London is the history of change. Uh, I haven't been here all of my life either, although it sometimes seems like it. Um, I've been city planning officer since 1985, so I've done more than a life sentence, and I'm still enjoying it, I have to say. My first arrival in the City of London was at the age of 13 on the top deck of a number 15 bus en route to the Tower of London. In fact, there are people who still say that I should be sent to the Tower of London. But the, um, in those days, I was coming up as a, as a teenage tourist with my family. And I've never forgotten, because uh, as we passed Temple Bar coming into the city, I remember my father nudging me and saying, well, we're now going into the city of London. It's a very different place. Even the policemen are taller here. And, in, of course, in those days, they were, because to be a city policeman, you had to be over six feet tall, whereas in the rest of the country, I think five foot ten or five, five foot ten would do. And to this day, the city police call the Metropolitan Police the Bantams, even though under equalities legislation, of course, five foot ten does anywhere these days. So, at a very early age, I was aware it was somewhere different. Um, I came to London to university. It was the only place I wanted to come from my home in South Wales. I wanted to come to London. Uh, and at University College, we were divided up into teams. I was studying architecture. Our very first project was to be sent to different parts of London to see how well they worked and what um, changes we would make as young architects. I was put into a team which, ironically, was sent to Paternoster Square in the city of London. Little did I realise that decades of my actual career would be spent sorting out the real project. So it only goes to show you should pay attention when you're being educated. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Um, the city will never be finished. Um, that's its great strength. The important thing is to try and avoid it all being done at once. Um, as we were saying earlier, of course, planners can't actually regulate the market or economic circumstance. Uh, so, if you like, that, that's something where um, we're working at one remove to ensure that what does happen is beneficial, um, that what is happening is allowing for a number of potential um, outturns because we're no better at predicting the future than anybody else. After all, you know, if, if bankers and governments can't predict the future, what chance planners? But what we have to try and make sure is that as we go along, we're making it a better place, better open spaces, better shopping, um, better facilities for people that come to enjoy it or work here or live here. And knowing that that is taking us forward step by step to a better future, but not knowing exactly what that future will be. Well, that's interesting because it seems even the, the word itself, planning, does seem to suggest that you must have some sort of predictive models or, or something like that as to where you think things are going to be required or what, what you see the future shaping into. Well, yes, we have to make guesses and it's our job to try to either extrapolate the past and present forward which works to some degree, but also to be the first people to spot changes and trends. For instance, at the moment, there's a huge growth in the insurance sector, which has always been an important component of the city's business. Um, we're finding uh, companies moving headquarters from Chicago, um, moving business from New York to the city of London in the insurance field. That's very important. The city isn't just about banking. It never has been. I suppose we've been through a rather unusual period over the last couple of decades where finance, the finance industry in terms of banking has come much more to the fore in London. But prior to that, of course, we had the media with the newspapers in Fleet Street. We had odd things like the fur trade. There were various different kinds of um, activities that took place in the square mile. 
I think that as the banking industry reforms itself in the light of circumstances and past mistakes, so the city will again uh, develop a more rounded economy and the other uses will perhaps become more prominent. As I said, this is happening with the insurance sector at the moment. But one of the largest sites under development in the city is the uh, site at Walbrook, which is going to be the European headquarters of Bloomberg. Um, all right, linked with finance, but a, a media operation. So the media are, in the sense, coming back into the city, which is where they were. And why wouldn't they? Because the media are after gossip, just like you are today. And that um, is what the city is about. And, you know, this is a, a centre of gossip. So the media need to be as close to that as possible. So media coming back into the city. So therefore, I'm busy trying to spot these changes as they start to happen, encouraging those that actually fit into a better, more rounded city, and perhaps discouraging some that might have a negative impact, like, for instance, having large numbers of residents in the city. Oh, that's interesting. So you'd, you'd actively discourage that. Uh, now, I seem to remember that there was an element of integration that uh, you, uh, we met before, of course, was sort of quite proud of, I think, that residents and businesses were sitting quite closely alongside one another. Now, of course, I've got two standpoints here. I'm the city planning officer, but I'm also a city resident. Uh, And, of course, it is good to have residents in the city. I am one. Um, But it's very important that the residential component of the city doesn't conflict with its principal role, which is as an international business centre. If you can imagine uh, residents living throughout the city, even in small numbers, they wouldn't be terribly happy to wake up in the morning and find that the site next to them was about to be redeveloped. They wouldn't be terribly happy in the evenings and at weekends to find that the um, mechanical plant on top of the building was being replaced at times when it didn't impact on the traffic but would impact on them as residents. So although there are areas of the city like the Barbican and areas around Allgate and um, one or two of our conservation areas where there are concentrations of residents and it's possible for the city to provide them with a a residential quality of amenity in terms of peace and quiet and um, the facilities that go with a residential area, it isn't possible to do this across the whole of the city without sacrificing our business role. This is compounded by the fact that in this country people believe in home ownership to a degree that isn't common throughout the rest of the world. If you think of Paris or Vienna or Berlin or even midtown New York, the majority of residents are renting their properties and therefore if a new development does come along next door they can easily move. But of course in this country, home being castle and all of that, everybody wants to control what goes on around their property uh, and therefore the person who is the, um, uh, shall we say, the aspiring resident of today becomes the NIMBY of tomorrow. Well, there we go. I hope you've enjoyed some of those snippets from the year just gone. We'll be doing plenty more of the same in 2013. Our new year on Londonist Outlab will be starting with a predictions special in which Matt Brown, Rachel Holdsworth and Beth Parnell Hopkinson will be joining me to say what they expect from London in the new year. For now, though, thank you for lending Londonist out loud your ear in 2012. So if you're celebrating the arrival of the new year, well, I hope it's a blast. And I hope, too, that you have a healthy, happy and prosperous 2013.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.